Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 108 with my guest, Greg Fitzsimmons. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of good stuff there. There's surveys you can take. There's a newsletter you can sign up for. You can buy a T-shirt. You can, um, did I mention the forum? Wow. Wow. I don't even want to know what I'm going to look like when I'm 80. That is not good. My wife and I always joke about I'm going to be plowing through a, a farmer's market in my oversized Cadillac thinking that I'm I'm in a cornfield. People bouncing off my windshield. Um what did I want to share with you? Uh, well, you know what? Let's just get right into the the surveys. Um, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. And uh, if I haven't mentioned it before, you can not only take the surveys on the website, but you can see how other people have responded to the surveys. And uh, because they are anonymous, it's fascinating what people will um, share. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. It was filled out by a guy who calls himself N.D. Astro, uh, he's straight, he's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He was always there for his loved ones. How does writing that make you feel? Worried that I will have let someone down. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would like to go back and see my mother and father before the tumultuous years. I'd like to see both of them happy with each other. I'd like to believe I was brought into this world by two people who cared for one another. Of all the responses to that question, that is one of the most common one, uh, c common answers. And the other one, and I totally relate to that, um, and the other one is people that were abused as children would like to go back because a lot of times the memories are fuzzy. They want to go back and have an objective view on whether or not they were abused. Um, 
what things do you feel that you don't feel like you should feel? He writes, I'm supposed to feel disappointed about regaining much of the weight I lost, but I don't. I feel relieved. I feel like myself again. I found that one to be fascinating. Um, do you... How does it make you feel to write your, your real, real feelings out? He writes, ashamed. I know I should be desperately striving to be healthy, both physically and mentally, but giving up the fight has been like an extended vacation. That makes it make, make more sense. Um, so it's the giving up the fight more than the result of the um, gaining the weight back. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? He writes, yes. A normal person should be able to fight the urge to overeat. Uh, a normal person should be so embarrassed by their poor body image that he or she would go to the greatest of lengths to change. You know, I felt that way about my addictions for years, and then I had to say, maybe I'm not normal. Maybe I'm, I think what I experience is common. I think there's a lot of addicts out there. Um, but sometimes I think, I wonder what is normal. Is anybody really normal? And why don't I just focus on what my battle is and decide whether or not I can control it or I need to call in uh, support. Go to a support group. Get therapy. Suck my thumb. That one's not working out too well. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? He writes, it is nice to consider the thought that I'm not alone in this. Well, I can tell you ND Astro, you are most definitely not alone in that one. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence. Actually, these next couple of ones are going to be from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This is filled out by Anon. She's uh, straight. She's between 16 and 19. About her depression, she writes, My life is a movie that has the sole purpose of showing a person's demise. Uh, about her anxiety, I long for the days when there is nothing that worries me but I know that that will never come. Well, I would say that you're you're a teenager. You got a lot of life ahead of you. I wouldn't I wouldn't get too wrapped up in predicting the future. Um, this was filled out by a woman. Uh, she calls herself Catcher in the Rye. W R Y. She's in her twenties. About her depression. Uh, she has major depressive disorder. She writes, it's like waking up with a gross fat monster on my chest, whispering awful things in my ears, making it hard to breathe or focus. Sometimes I sleep so I don't have to wake up and see him. Boy, do I relate to that one. About her anxiety, she says, it's like the world is ending, but I'm the only one who notices and there's nothing I can do to stop it. About her codependency, she writes, it feels like you're the least important person in the world and this somehow makes you the most important person in the world. Wow. That's fucking heavy. I might have to just sit and stare at the moon and think about that one. I love, I love when you guys fill this out in a way that just hits me like a, like a laser beam. This was filled out by Jack. He's uh, in his 20s. About his anorexia, he wrote, yes, men do have anorexia. Like a lot of people filling these surveys out. A lot of men that uh, struggle with body image and uh, eating disorders. He writes about his anorexia, hoping that one day I will be so thin I just won't wake up. Dylan, who is in his 20s, about his codependency, writes, whenever I have a girlfriend, I just want to hide from the world with her. I've had that fantasy Many, many times in in my teenage years, 
and in my early 20s um it would i would always picture myself like on an island with somebody so that we would be uninterrupted and that's probably not healthy um about this is also from the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself meh in no i wonder if that means new orleans he is bi he's in his 40s about his depression and his mania he writes it feels like uh Everyone I ever loved took an ice cream scoop and took out a part of me and then left me hollow and alone. About his anxiety, he writes, feels like there will never be enough time to do everything that needs doing. About his love addiction, he says, it feels like I must have someone worried about me all the time and if they don't respond to my texts or emails, the panic involved causes me to think they don't really care. About his sex addiction, he writes, I jack off daily and have gotten to the point that I use it as a reward for accomplishing something in my life, but most times just to have a fucking moment that feels good. About his codependency, he writes, it feels like I need for someone to need me all the time to do something for them, but bitch and moan when they do actually call and ask me to do something. I always lie to them and say it's nothing to help, even though it's really a pain in the ass to go do something for them from my personal time. About his... ADHD, he writes, it feels like I see all the things that need to be done, but waste all my time thinking about how to start a project. It's like having a fucking Bugatti revving up in my head in drive, but it has a busted transmission. That's, thank you for those. Those are so, uh, I don't know what the word is, so articulate. This is from the Body Shame Survey. And um, I should actually call it the body image survey because some people don't dislike their bodies. And uh, I love this woman. Um, she's in her 20s. She calls herself transegic. I think that's how you pronounce it. She's uh, about her body image. She writes, I love the unforgiving curves and womanly shape that I've spent most of my young life feeling ashamed of and hiding. I've learned the hard way to not be apologetic for the inherent natural state of my human self and refuse to apologize for taking up space in this lovely, fucked-up world. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. You know, I, I've i been having health issues lately. I've been going to a lot of doctors, getting a lot of different tests done. I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago that for like five, ten minutes um, a couple of weeks ago, I went completely blind in my in my left eye and kind of freaked me out. Um, but I've had enough health issues over the last <laughs> 50 years um, that I, I just kind of have this resigned slump shoulder feel about my health, my depression, you know, my various health issues. And um, so I've been getting a battery of tests. And the most recent one today was going to the hospital and they put an IV. It's it's called an echocardiogram, a 2D echocardiogram with bubbles. They shoot bubbles into your bloodstream, which I was like, isn't that supposed to kill you? But they're small enough that it doesn't. But it lets them see if there's a leak uh, somewhere in your heart. And so I'm laying on this table and they put this big-ass needle because they want the biggest needle possible so that the bubbles can, can get in there. And... Um, and I was just I had this really, really sweet woman who was who was doing the ultrasound on my heart, and she's showing me all the different chambers in my heart, and I was just watching my heart beat, 
and I was watching, she was showing me the valve open up as the blood moved through it. And just, just like clockwork, this valve would open and close and open and close and open and close. And I thought, I thought it was kind of beautiful because here's this part of my body where there's no questions asked. It knows what it needs to do. And I and I could I felt like this feeling of love for my heart, like this fucking thing is keeping me alive. And I, why can't I feel that way about the rest of my body? Why do I have such shame about as I talk about in this episode with Greg, uh, and I've shared it on the podcast before, and I apologize. Sometimes I feel like, oh God, he's talking about his fucking cock again. But it, I, I, I struggle with that. I think everybody struggles with accepting their body, and I don't know it. Seeing seeing my heart beat on its own just made me feel. It reminded me that this all comes from someplace else that is beyond our power. And if we can find some degree of acceptance over the things in our bodies that we don't have power over, good or bad, maybe we can get a little more peace and serenity into our lives. At least until my biceps get a little sweeter. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. I'm here with Greg Fitzsimmons, and and it feels a little weird because we're in his garage using his equipment because I just did his uh, podcast. Uh, Fitz Dog Radio is his podcast. You probably know Greg from being a guest on Howard Stern's radio station um, or on his radio show. He also has his own radio show on Sirius on the Howard 101 channel. Um you know Greg from um, from mostly from from being a stand up. Um, what what else am I missing? I mean, you've been on Comedy Central, all of the major well, I won talk four, shows. Four daytime Emmys for writing for the Ellen on the DeGeneres. Ellen show, and then I wrote on uh, Louis's show, Louis C.K. Lucky show, Louis. and uh, a million other TV shows. And I've got a new one hour special coming out on Comedy Central. In oh, April. awesome! What's yeah. it called? Life on Stage. Simple. I didn't want it like demolition. <laughs> Or termination. Like, how about life on stage? Yeah. How about that? That's pleasant. Sweet. Uh, Greg is originally from uh, New York City. Just outside the city. Tarrytown, New York. Beautiful. Went to school in Boston. Boston University. He's a hockey player. Who's your team? The Rangers or the Bruins? Rangers. Yeah. But I, I'll be honest with you. I play hockey way more often than I watch it. I love watching it. But I got two kids, man. Yeah. I don't have time to watch sports. I watch the Super Bowl... 
you know, I'll watch the NBA finals, like, but just... I'm the same way. I just watch the major yeah. events in different sports, but I do like watching the individual Blackhawk games, but I don't I don't have kids, so I God, have that, that luxury. Cra- I mean, it used to be the Bulls, and now it's the Blackhawks. Chicago is Blackhawk fucking crazy. They it's are crazy. There. It's it's They're a really, really entertaining team to, to watch. Yeah. Um, you have been really on... I've always liked your stand-up. Greg is a great stand-up. Um, Thank you. I've... Uh, Every time I see you perform, you you know you'll do some joke that I'll just I, I laugh at, and I'm jealous that I didn't write it. <laughs> um, and the the first time that I thought you would be a good guest for this uh, podcast was when I heard you tell a story about experimenting with whether or not you might be gay. Do you, do you remember that that story? How yes. it, how it goes? Yes. Can you? Can you talk about that? I'm just sure. thinking that might be a good a good place yeah. to start. Um, I think I, I had very um, probably healthy understanding of gender as a kid. I think my I grew up very liberal. You know, my my parent, my father was a very liberal radio broadcaster, and even though I grew up Irish Catholic, we weren't homophobic. And and I think my parents told me at a young age that being gay is not a choice. It's just who you are. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. And I always thought, you're trying to tell me I'm gay? <laughs> <laughs> but then I grew up and, uh, you know, at the time period that you and I grew up, it was like, you know, David Bowie and Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger and all these guys that played with gay. And it was cool. And then I got into college and I was reading... Ginsburg and Kerouac and Emerson and all, all these guys that also were a lot of gay imagery. And it, to me, it felt like something untapped because I, I drank a phenomenal amount starting from a very young age, did a lot of drugs, smoked a lot of pot and experimented sexually in every possible. I was I had sex with anybody. I was a numbers guy. I was not about the quality <laughs> of the experience. And so uh, three ways and that, you know, everything. Yeah. And so fooling around with a guy just seemed to me like, well, we got to try that one. Sure. And the funny thing was, I didn't feel it. Like, I never felt like attracted to a guy on any level. Like, I never found men to be like a turn on. But at the same time, it felt like, well, you're not going to know until you try it. So cut to like, God. I want to say junior year, junior year of college. And meanwhile, I took a year off after high school, traveled around Europe by myself for six months. I'd been out in the world. And now it's junior year of college. And I'm stumbling home, and I happen to be living in the Fenway, which is the gay neighborhood of Boston, just by coincidence. And there's a Brambles. There's the, there's the every city has like a small wooded area downtown mm-hmm. for no reason except anonymous gay sex. And you know what happens in there. And during the day, like, you know, you may walk your dog, but your dog may end up with a condom in his mouth. So <laughs> you, you kind of avoid that part of it. And so I just find myself I'm stumbling home. And all of a sudden, I just hang a left. And I walk in. And I don't know how it works. I don't know, like... If there's a signal or one spot, I just sort of start walking around, and then this guy pops out from behind a tree, like like a, a nymph, like a, a you know, like a little uh, you know uh, a, a magic little troll. And so I'm like, all right, I guess this is it. And he walks up, and he uh, we don't say anything, and he undoes his fly, 
and he pulls pulls it out. But not just the penis, but the penis and the balls. Mm-hmm. And I look at it, and it takes me about two and a half seconds to go like, not interested at all. Not, like, not like, ew, just like, this. No, there's nothing there I for me. I don't feel anything. Not yeah. feeling it. But now I realize it's three in the morning and I'm alone in the woods and the guy's got his cock out. So I kind of freak out and I push him and he, his pants are, you know, half undone and he trips and falls down and then he sprints off into the uh, woods and I just stumble out of the woods like, uh, well, there's that. (laughs) Check that one off the, uh, off the list. But I, you know, and that was it. I never thought about it again. Yeah. But I like that. I, I, the reason I bring that up is my favorite people are people that are seekers and are open-minded. And to me, that was a story that exemplifies somebody who is open-minded and a, and a seeker. Yeah. And th- those, to me, make for, for good guests for this podcast. And I know that you've lived with uh, depression. And you had a drug and alcohol problem. You've been sober now 20 plus years? Uh, 1990, January 1st. So, uh, God damn, isn't that crazy? But that's 23 years, three months, 20 days. That's amazing. God damn. That's a long time. That is, I just realized that is half my life then because I quit probably when I was 24. So this year will be half of my life. That's a mm. pretty big milestone. That's awesome. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. What What was it like growing up in uh, Terrytown, you said it was? Very, very um, weird, fucked up town. First of all, my dad is an alcoholic. He died at 50. Basically, he really? smoked three and a half packs a day and drank a lot and was, you know, a lot of alcoholism in the family. Every Everybody. And uh, so... I think the reason why I quit so young is that I started when I was probably 12 and I just knew where this was headed. I knew that, you know, I didn't want to end up like my dad, you know, just in ter- just emotionally. I didn't want to be a guy who had everything, you know, good career, wife, kids, nice car, the whole thing. And unhappy. I knew how sad and depressed he was. And I said, I got to give myself a shot. To, and I know the categorically drinking is going to keep me from ever self-actualizing in any way. And it was so funny because I'm sure you've gone to enough support groups. It didn't matter that one woman was an overweight 60-year-old black woman and another one was a little Philippine. Like, he had no, we had nothing in common and yet everything in common. And it just was, uh, and it was profound. You know, the first time I went, I just burst into tears when I heard people talking just relating to what they said, not knowing that this was a thing, that children of alcoholics. And, you know, a, a girlfriend of mine had me go. She's like, you you don't understand. You're from a system that's damaged. It's not just your dad. Like, you grew up with it, and you are a part of this uh, mobile. Like, you know, a mobile, how the different parts are hanging, and they're all out of order, but somehow it all does hang. But you take one piece out, and it collapses. And I had to take some time off from my dad, Um and uh, like I know you're going through that now with your mom, but I went through that situation with my dad. And sadly, we'd been very close my whole life, very volatile. I mean, it was, you know, physical abuse. And I took some time off from him. And for seven months, I didn't speak to him. And then I get a phone call that he just died. 
Wow. And that fucked me up for a long time. You wow. Know? Yeah. So. What did? What do you remember when that phone call came through, thinking or feeling? It just felt like all reality. Um, you know, like when you go into your time machine on Apple and all of a sudden the universe thing pops up and all the calendars just start to go off like Star Wars at the beginning. It felt like that, like I was being pulled back from the whole earth and everything was out of whack and I was floating and it seemed like a dream, you know? I had just come in the door. Literally, the phone was ringing. I was coming in from the door. We just spent like four days down on the Jersey Shore. I was living in Boston. I'd just driven all the way back. It was five, six hours, whatever. And uh, it just floored me because I, I hadn't been speaking to my mom. And my sister was like in Alaska, but nobody could find her. And it was just crazy. My brother hadn't been talking to my dad. And, uh, you know... I, that's when I went through some very, very serious depression. And I think I started go, really going to therapy for the first time. And Were you drinking at that point? No, no, I had stopped. That was part of the reason I couldn't be around him. He really had a problem with the fact that I'd stopped drinking. It was like one of those things like, a, what do you mean you quit? I drink way more than you, and I didn't quit. <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine that, that really highlighted... His drinking. Yeah. And my mother's enabling it, you know. Did you feel like you had made a mistake by cutting contact with him? I mean, to this day, I think on an emotional level, like I can tell you in my head I did the right thing and that I needed that and it was just crazy luck. But I think, you know, as an Irish Catholic, I think we don't believe in luck. <laughs> We believe in guilt. <laughs> we believe in guilt and that that happened to punish me. And uh, I felt like I'd caused it on some level. And, uh, you know, I never got over it. I still feel really guilty about it. I still don't deal with it to some degree. And I never will. You know, it's just one of those things in life where you go like, there's certain things I'm going to work on. There's certain things I'm going to come to terms with. And that's not one of them. Well, what do you think the odds are that in those seven months you would have had nice moments with your dad? Very, very little. And I know that in my head. Because it had come to it had come to a head because stand up represented to me uh not being under his control. You know, he was a very dominating guy growing up. There was a lot of high expectations and a lot of encouragement, you know. He was a phenomenal really supportive of my stand up. And uh I had spent the summer in New York at his apartment and literally having to carry him home from bars some nights and, you know, really bad, bad, you know, bringing up a lot of shit being around that. And then he told me that uh, I wasn't writing enough in my stand-up. He came out to see me and he made me ashamed of stand-up. And I had felt like, no, stand-up's mine. You don't get to do that. You've done that to everything in my life. You don't get to do that to stand-up. And it was really the thing that, that And I tried to reach out to him, and I looked back, and I had this breakthrough in therapy where I realized I didn't cut him off. He cut me off because I didn't want to come home for Thanksgiving, and he was crushed, and I called, and he wouldn't come to the phone. And after years, I thought, I didn't cut him off. I just made a choice to not come home for Thanksgiving. I would have come home in December or whenever. 
And so, um, yeah, a lot of it is it's a real head trip and... Yeah, maybe it is something I should reopen the files. Maybe it is a cold case I should reopen at this point. Yeah. But, you know, stuff doesn't get filed away in our our brains neatly and orderly. That's the the thing that fucks us up, I think, is we want it to be like OCD clean. Oh, I can put that away now. I know that. But there's... When it it's comes not to, a novel. There's no clarity at the end. Yeah, there isn't. And I can't imagine how hard that must be replaying that over and over in your mind because the sick part of your brain that is looking for a way to punish yourself, that's a fucking buffet for it. Mm. That's a buffet for it. But um, yeah, Handling death has been very difficult for me. Since then, you know, I have a really, really hard time. And I've had a lot of death in my life. I've had a lot of good friends die. And uh, I just had my uncle, who basically took my father's place when my dad died, just died about six weeks ago. And that was really fucking heavy. And, uh, you know, I, I just, when I think about my wife dying, like me and my kids were driving the other day and they said, what... We were playing that game, if you could have one wish. And, of course, my kids go, to have a thousand more wishes. It's like, no, you don't get that one. That's a thing. Everyone knows that in the game you don't ask for more. And they said, well, what would your one wish be? And I said that I outlive you two. No, that you two outlive me. Because that is my worst nightmare, to bury a child. My wife, as long as we're old, I can live with that. Let her fucking (laughs) clean up. How long have you guys been married? 13 years, 14 this summer. And what's what's your, obviously, uh, putting you on the spot a little bit, asking you to publicly <laughs> say how your marriage is going. <laughs> what kind of a podcast is this? How's your marriage going? So, how's your marriage going? <laughs> you know that lifelong commitment that you made that dwarfs everything and, and is how people will judge you? How is that? How's that going, by the way? I guess a better <laughs> a better question would be... No, no, no. What? I'll answer it. I will gladly answer it. And it will annoy people when I say this. But don't be annoyed because I have put, like yourself, I have put a lifetime into self-help, recovery, therapy, sobriety, and putting my marriage above everything else, including my kids. That was in our marriage vow is we will put each other above everything in life, including our own children. Because if you think about it, and a priest told us this, if your relationship falls apart, it's the worst thing that can happen to your kids. So you won't, you don't want to become one of those parents that ignores the spouse and, well, you had this with your mother. Yeah. This is exactly, I'm describing it to, to you. It is the worst thing that can happen to a child. I'm sure you would have much preferred that your mother didn't, Spent a lot of time doting on you, and instead you got to watch a functioning couple that loved each other. Would have loved it. Right. Would have loved it. So because of that, I am. I just told my wife I loved her a couple hours ago in a deep way. I just looked at her and just told her, you know? And then five minutes later, she came over and just kept kissing me and saying, I love you. And it's like, you know, it hasn't always been as close as that, but we never had a really bad stretch. And we've really, I just... I can't leave the house, you know, as a comic. I'm supposed to, I have an office three three fucking minutes from here and I never go because she's home 
and I just hang around like a dog. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? That's awesome. Man. Yeah, it's really great. Do you think that would have been possible without the work that you've done on yourself? No, no, I don't. I think that we might have been, we would have still had the fun, but there would have been a lot of built up shit. We clean it out. You know, if, if we've got something on our minds, we, we get it out, deal with it. So I think that humans are capable of being like, like my, somebody said to me, uh, it's the opposite of what you just said earlier is that a lot of couples can vacation well, you know, um, but it's when they get home and they got to pay the bills and they got, that's where you see whether the relationship is good. Cause you said before that and when we were doing your podcast, that actually yeah. going on vacation can prove that things aren't going well. It might go either way, but I feel like as an Irish person, I know how to party with or without booze, I can have a blast. I love being social, being around people, going out, um, you know, exploring and laughing. And that's that's all stuff that I think is just in our DNA. But um, I think that the darkness is the thing that I've worked on. It's bringing the bottom up. Let's talk, let's talk about that. What? When did you begin to sense that there was a bottom that you couldn't handle on your own? Oh, from a very young age. Very young age. You know, I... Um, Spent a lot of my childhood reading uh, alone. I used to bring a light in the closet and read in there. Um, I used to lay under a table and watch TV. And I had a lot of really good friends, but no best friend. And there was always this this wall that I wouldn't get past with friends. And, you know, anybody that's ever met me is like, you have more friends than anyone I've ever met. And I have a million people that consider themselves close, close friends of mine, but not... I shouldn't say close, close, close friends of mine. And um, I would get really, really dark. I have ADHD, so I didn't connect well in school, and I got terrible grades, and I felt stupid. I felt less than. I was a skinny, small kid. I felt very intimidated, which led me to have a vicious temper gotten into fights my whole life. That's why hockey was actually a really healthy thing for me. And uh, so I don't know if the depression, I think the depression is in there and it might have been the cause of, I think the ADHD and depression mixed together kept me isolated my whole life. I always felt isolated. Did you feel like there was something inside you that you had to hide from other people? Oh yeah, very much so. Like yeah. if they really knew what I feel and think, um, that I would not be accepted. Right. Was it the darkness? Was it a thing that was like in your thinking or something you would feel in your body or both? Both. I felt fatigue and I felt headaches and I'd feel like tingliness when I got overwhelmed with anxiety. And, um, you know, exercise, it's amazing what exercise does for me now. You know, I go to the gym every single day, and when I don't, I have a bad day. And as a kid, when I was on a sports team and I was, you know, playing hockey every day after school, it was great. And when I wasn't, that's why I was always a very physical kid. You know, I've mm -hmm. spent, like, from the age of 12 or 13, I used to caddy in the summer, and I um, played as many sports. I was a horrible athlete, but I played sports year-round. And, uh, you know, it's just something that, I think I found subconsciously that was helping me, but I needed medication as a kid and I didn't, I didn't have it and, and I take it now. 
And sports are really good for um, anxiety. Right. Did you burn it out? Oh yeah, burn it out. There, you know, there's nothing like the feeling of after exercising for a, a couple hours where you've given it everything and you just you feel spent. It's really hard to. It's almost like after you come, it's kind of it's hard to be anxious. Yeah, you know, right after you orgasm. Right, especially if you're safely indoors. Yeah. No, so uh, yeah, exercise helps a lot, and um, the power of now. Over the last year has been a book that really, really gave me some simple, just cognitive therapy. I mean, it is such a, such a like bricks and mortar way of just not going down, of just stopping and saying, I'm thinking this, just observing your thoughts instead of feeding into them. I spent my whole life hiding who I was from people, being afraid they were going to see me, even physically. I never, I used to go to hockey practice and I would wear my jeans under my pads because I didn't want anybody to see me in my underwear. This is in high school, all through high school. Really? Yes. Where did that body shame come from? I was skinny and pale and I had freckles, but I think a lot of skinny, pale people with freckles wouldn't have had that issue, but... There was a lot I of, had the same thing, by the way, but it was because I was on the small side for, for my age, very small for my age, and I was your like... Your penis? My body, my penis, everything. So I was like, you know, there was... I couldn't conceive that anybody would have a smaller penis and testicles than, than, than I had. Right. You know, I, I mean, it was a four foot ten as a freshman and sophomore in high school. Yeah, I was tiny and skinny as hell. I was embarrassed by it all, and... uh I was so jealous of fat people even. I really? would look at fat people and be like, man, look at the way his feet fill up his high tops and he's got like calves. And like my sneakers, I'd have to lace them until the fucking eyes of the laces were touching each other yes. and there was no lace. And uh, and hard finding your size in jeans. Right. Like, yeah. Right. And, um, and the pads, like my hockey pads would spin around my legs. They wouldn't even stay in place. Oh, God, it was horrible. And you can't conceive of a girl being attracted to you when you're, you know, a child. You're a child. Right, right. And you hit puberty late. Yeah, that's the worst. Oh, man. I know. I I, I am just, I think I started feeling good about my body maybe less than 10 years ago. Just, and my body didn't get better. I just finally went, and it was partly my wife who was like, you have a great body. Because I do. I am totally fit. I'm 150 pounds, five foot eight. I've been exercising my whole life, and I I don't I don't feel great about my body. But like, you know, compared to how most people look, I should objectively feel good about it. But yeah, I think there was some shame. There was some shame put on us as kids. I don't know where that necessarily came from. And if you decide that you want to start picking your body apart. You know, nobody really looks at another person's body bit by bit where they isolate a certain thing. We kind of take people in as right. the whole. Right. But when we look at ourselves, we look at our nose mm-hmm. or our lips or our ears or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And we, we take it out of context. What's your What's your thing? Um, I hate how my ass sticks out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good thing. N- you know, I've I've had women say you you know you you have a nice butt, but my friends made fun of me when I was in grade school, and my mom would always tell me she'd slap me on the ass and say, you know, uh, 
put your put your butt in. Was it that your back is arched or that you have flesh back there? Both. Yeah. Both, I think. Um, the shape of my head, dislike the shape of my head, dislike the way my testicles look. Um, they Still? Don't, yeah. Yeah. Because one didn't descend as much as the other one and they're, they don't hang as low as most guys' testicles. And so even today when I am, and, I, and I'm what you would call a, uh, you know, there's showers and there's growers. In the shower? Like and, the locker? Yeah. So when I get, you know, I'm a grower. I'm not a, I'm not a shower. So it... When I shower, you know, take my clothes off to shower after after hockey, I I never don't feel just a twinge of anxiety like, oh my God, your genitals aren't. Someone's gonna zero in on that. Yeah, one somebody thing. I'm kind of surprised that nobody has made fun of the way my genitals no, look. No, because that would mean they're looking. Yeah. No one's gonna admit that because I mean, you're way beyond me. I could never shower with other guys. Never. Still. I mean, even now, if I change in hockey, the moment my pants come off before mm. my jeans go on is a mad dash where I look around before I take my jeans off. Yeah. What is, what is the fear? That they're just going to think silent, silently to themselves, ooh. Right. That they're going to that they're going to think fuck. I'm not a man. I have a yeah. big thing about not feeling like a man. My father was 6'1", big tough guy from the Bronx. And he made me feel like a pussy because I wasn't tough. I was a sensitive kid. You know, I had real deep feelings. I knew I was going to be a writer from a young age. And I think that he saw us as spoiled suburban kids who grew up with a lot more money than he grew up with. And it was like, well, whose fault is that, fuckface? <laughs> you created this situation. Isn't it crazy? It is crazy. Um, but getting getting back to the to the body thing, um, I I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you don't feel manly enough. You don't feel manly enough about about your body. There's I or think, my voice, really. I have a high pitched voice, and it's I went to voice lessons recently to try to get a deeper voice. I call information. They'll be like, "Hold for the number, ma'am," and it's like, "What?" Oh my god! You do not. You do not. I have swear a to you, I go on the Howard Stern show and the fans call in, going, "He sounds like a pussy." I don't have that deep. Hey, I've never thought. I've heard you many, many times, and I've never been aware of your Good. of your voice. Now I feel better. Yeah, I think about how hideous your body is. But we just talked about how. <laughs> I'm going to put repellent. my clothes on now. Repellent. <laughs> uh, so. Any seminal moments from, from childhood or adolescence kind of stick out? Jesus Christ. Many. I mean, I wrote a book called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. And my I got in trouble my whole life. And so it's letters that my I found out years later. I went in the basement, in my, my aunt's basement in the Bronx, and I found a box of letters uh, and notes, disciplinary reports, arrest clippings from the newspaper i got arrested a few times for fighting drinking and uh my mother saved everything wow like trophies like that's how the irish are like that's a trophy that they think it's cool that you're rebellious you know right and so i wrote this book about that rebellion and how it started with my father and as an authority figure who used to beat me and uh how scared i was of him and how i ended up very angry and lashing out and going against authority my whole life because of it. So, I mean, I don't want to rehash what's in the book too much, but I mean, a lot of the seminal moments are in there. 
Um, probably the biggest one, the life turner for me. I mean, and again, we talked before about how you, you can't always wrap things up and neatly file them away, but this is definitely a turning point moment that I didn't think of that way until years later. But it was very clearly a time when I had changed, where I told you I'd gone to Europe uh, when I was uh, 18 and took a year off after high school. I didn't think I'd go to college. And I came back, and then I went to college freshman year. So I'd had some time out of the house. I'd started to actually have some real self-esteem. Like, college was amazing for me. I lifted weights for the first time in my life. I was going six days a week, and I actually had muscle. I had, like, fucking tits and shoulders and, mm. you know, and so and, – and I was getting laid, and I was getting great grades because they, they had a special program at Boston University for kids that had had bad grades but good SAT scores, and they knew they had – um, you know, behave, not behavioral, um, like learning disabilities. And it changed my life. So I'm back that summer and I'm laying in bed and it's, you know, like midnight or something I'm reading. And my sister, who was probably about 16 at the time, comes home and she's drunk. And my parents are up, they wake up and there's some yelling. And then I hear him hit my sister. And without even thinking about it, I ran downstairs and I got in his face in between them and I said, you don't hit her. You don't hit a girl. I said, if you want to hit somebody, you hit me. And he just looked at me, you know, he just froze. And I thought he was going to fucking kill me, but I wasn't scared. It was just this moment. Like this is, this has been happening my whole life. This used to happen to me. This motherfucker did this. And no one said anything. And it took me being out of the house to have this perspective that this wasn't right. And my sister started crying. She hadn't been crying because you would never cry. When he would beat you, you wouldn't give him tears. You just fucking take it. So she starts crying. I put my arm around her and I start walking her upstairs and I look at my parents' bedroom and there's my mother sitting on the edge of the bed, quietly, head down, not stopping him. And I come up to the top of the stairs and there's my brother not saying anything and she goes in her room and I go in my room and then my father came up the stairs about, you know, five minutes later and, you know, his big footsteps on the stairs and I'm sitting in my room going, you know, with the car wallpaper up and I got my little twin bed and, and he comes in and I was like, all right, this is it. This is, this is going to be bad. And he just said, stand up. I stood up and he comes over and he goes, if you ever cross me again in this house, you're out. No college, nothing. Do you understand me? And I said, yeah. He goes, what? I'm like, yes. And he walked out, and I just pitied him. Like, I saw it all. In that moment, I saw all that power that I thought he had gone. That it was just this house of cards, and that all it took was somebody to turn the lights on. And he was this sad, you know, ineffectual, weak guy. You know, who hits a fucking 16-year-old girl? Wow. That was like a little movie. Yeah. That was like a little fucking movie. And it is so weird because it is one of those things you can file away. You can really go. And after that, you know, not that after that I never feared my dad or I never had him pull my strings. It, it continued to happen, but it was different. You know, our relationship fundamentally changed after that. Would it be fair to say that because you now knew that his his power 
or his aggression was not coming from a place of uh, authenticity, but from a place of little boy fear. Him being afraid that she was out of control. Or? Yeah, that that he was overwhelmed by his life. Right, right. I mean, is that is that fair to say? Or I think it was that, and I think that he was seeing himself. He was seeing a guy. Uh, yeah, he was seeing that he didn't want her to end up like him. But it was like when he would tell me to catch me smoking and give me a lecture, and he was smoking the whole time. It was just he didn't show us any example, but he told us how we were supposed to live. And so I saw a guy who um, was going to say this is unacceptable to her. And he knew that if he couldn't change, how could he change her, you know? And so it was the beatings never came from trying to teach us. They always came from his own frustration, his own anger. You know, I don't think too many parents hit their kids to teach them. I think there is those cases of your your three year old runs in the street and you, maybe you slap them on the ass. But I think beyond that, I don't I don't think that you hit a child in a constructive manner. Yeah, I, I always picture that parent as being scared and overwhelmed by their their life. You know, that they just feel like everything things are spiraling out of control, right. and that's their kind of primitive way of trying to induce some type of order into their into their life or that just the emotion that comes up is so overwhelming to them they've never been taught another way to express it other than yelling or or hitting yeah, and they have and they have an inability to communicate with their kids so they um they feel like well this is one way i know i'll communicate with them which is the worst way it does the opposite of whatever you're trying to teach them so you've probably never seen your dad get you never got to see him be vulnerable, really, did you? There were times late in his life. Uh, I have a picture of him when I left to go to Europe. There's a picture of him hugging me at the airport, and you can see he's he's got tears in his eyes. Really? He loved me a lot. I was, you know, really, he was really proud of me, and we made each other laugh a lot. We had a very deep bond. We connected. I think I was always somebody who was, was a sense, you know, I was very emotional, you know, and, and part of the book is there's a whole series of letters that I wrote to my dad, I think starting in Europe, uh, where I would write to him and they were, God damn, were they heartfelt, like, I love you. And, you know, I know you have a hard time sometimes, um, uh, because, you know, you, you had a tough life, but, uh, you know, you deserve to feel proud of your, like the way a father should be writing to a son, but I always felt like he could never be vulnerable and i knew that there was a guy in there that was hurting and all through college uh, you know and after college I, I found and here's the great thing is he never mentioned these notes ever that he'd received them and then after he died i was cleaning out his desk and i found a bundle wrapped up with string every letter postcard birthday card i'd ever given in my entire life they're all in there what did what did that feel like the floodgates open yeah that was like it was like that part of him that i always known knew was in there the vulnerable guy was there it was there's that guy and the fact that he could never say it to me like once in a while my mother would say uh i, I saw you wrote dad a note I, it meant a lot to him you know i think that he could read them but he couldn't respond to them did it this is probably a stupid question but make you sad that you never got to experience that 
part of himself that he hid away. No, it actually made me feel, I think it's one of the things that let me let go of how bad I felt the guilt about him dying without us talking is I think I, it let me feel like, you know what? I did reach out. This is proof in my hand that I kept opening the door to him. Yeah, it sounds like you tried really hard. Yeah. And normally it seems like it would be the other way around where, you know, the parent is trying to get through to the kid. Well, I think I think with our generation it was different. Our you know, our parents grew up tough. They grew up tougher than us. They had a they had a rougher life. There was people were less evolved, less it certainly internalized it more than we do. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't it wasn't part of the playbook to to not to, to externalize it. It just wasn't an option for them. You never saw a guy standing in front of a Model T saying, I feel overwhelmed. Right, right. <laughs> I don't deserve this. Yeah. No, it was like, um, you know, and that's part of the thing where I think I don't feel like a, a man is like, that. They are that generation did look at us like pussies. And by definition, we are. We're softer. We're not as like, you know, I don't know that I could go in a coal mine and, and work the way... <laughs> Not that he worked in a coal mine, but like those guys physically, they went to war. Can yeah. you imagine us going to war? No. Shit. You do those USO tours, right? No, I never have. Oh, because I mean, I couldn't even do that. No. I've joked about this on stage before, but I shit my pants playing paintball. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine live fire yeah. whizzing past my head. Right, I, right. It, it, wow. But people went to war, man. They got a letter in the mail, and that was it. There was no calling them and saying, hey, uh, can I postpone jury duty? It was like, no, you got a piece of paper in the mail, and it said report to this place with a fucking bag of your shit, the and end, then we'll send you somewhere for years. The end of a boat is going to open up. You're going to have to swim to shore while machine guns rake the beach. Right, and you went. You left a wife, a little baby, a couple other kids, and you just... Johnny was off, mm. off to war. I mean, that's mind-boggling. There's this museum in Kansas City, the World War One Museum, and like, because that, that, that was the trench warfare shit. That was the most, probably the most horrific war conditions of all time. And, uh, and the chemical warfare? Yes. Yeah. Nerve yeah. gas? And they're standing in trenches, knee-deep in mud that freezes into ice, and guys without boots, and rats, and you know, um, but... It's it just makes you realize, like, uh, I guess that humans are capable of doing that. But for me to imagine even coming close, I have a hard time. I'd have a hard time going to France on a vacation. I'd be like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is tough. We got a layover? What? The hotel's not serving food after 11? This is ridiculous. Well, you know, I think sometimes about... 50 or 100 years from now, people are going to look at those of us that live with mental illness and think about it that way and say, you mean you didn't, you just had to live with it? Mm. You had, you had days or weeks or months or years where you had trouble getting out of bed, where mm. things didn't bring you pleasure. And, and they would say, how did you do it? And you would say, we just did it. Mm. We just, you just soldiered on and i'm and, and i'm not saying that that is as bad as is combat but it's certainly its own it's its own war and it's its own struggle because it it colors everything well it's interesting that you say that because i never thought of that that 
there will be a cure. Well, to some degree. Or something be better. Something right. better than this hit and miss I mean, you medicine. think about what was available a generation ago. I mean, some of the drugs were available, but but they were a small percentage. The mo- most of the shit people were getting was either just speed or just lobotomies or just opiates. And uh, now you've got stuff that really understands how endorphins work in your brain and how the frontal lobe functions. And um, But I wonder if that's not going to be to the detriment of arts. I think about that, too. Where are the creative people going to come from? Because, I mean... Will all the music then be happy? <laughs> It it does serve an evolutionary purpose, and I and I know people scholars have written about that. But I could tell you, when we don't feel like getting out of bed, and there's no joy, and even the things that used to bring us pleasure, you don't really give a shit about evolution. <laughs> yeah, you just want to be able to, you know, find pleasure in something. All right, I want to take a little break here and give uh, give some love to our sponsor, Hover.com. If you have never registered uh, your own domain name, uh, I highly recommend using Hover.com. You can register in just a couple of clicks. There's no upselling, and you can get memorable email addresses. Uh, just imagine emailing somebody from uh, Paul at I don't want to read your screenplay.com. Nobody's ever going to ask you to read their screenplay after you get an email from that. Having trouble breaking up with your lady? Send her a nice email from Mike at I think we should see other people.org. You don't even have to say anything. The internet is wide open. Whatever name you can think of, if it's not taken, it's yours. So go right now, or at least when the podcast is over, go to hover.com slash mental, and they'll know that uh, that you're coming from my podcast. Again, hover.com slash mental. And now back to our interview with Greg Fitzsimmons. So, what are what are some other uh, seminal moments from from your life that kind of stand out? Well, I mean, I can think of times when I got beat up as a kid, and they still put goosebumps on me because I didn't fight back. Because earlier in my life, I didn't fight back. And then I started to, and uh, I still can't take the fact that that happened to me. And I think part of it was my dad. Were these other kids that? that Yeah. You know, I grew up in the entire town was, you know, kind of a tough town. There was, there were a lot of projects and there was a lot of, you know, kids from fucked up families. And, you know, you had to watch, you had to, you watch your step. And there were times when I lost sight of that and, um, I think it affected me more than it than it did other kids, um, and I wish I'd fought and gotten beat up than have taken it. It was humiliating, very, very humiliating to me, and I can't believe that that nerve is still live. It can still bring it up. I can still get angry just thinking about something that happened in third grade. Oh. I was waiting in line in third grade, and... Um, uh, I was teasing a girl, I don't know, pulling her pigtail, some fight, you know, typical. And then this kid from the grade below me, second grade, black kid, fucking slapped me around for doing it. 
in front of my class and I didn't do anything. And uh, I wish I could go back in time and lose that fight right. That must have been extra humiliating because he was in a grade below you. And black. No, I don't even know why I threw black in there. But I think that I was intimidated by black kids too, you know? It was like even at a young age, black kids were hanging out together, cousins, and uh, white kids felt like, you know, we had more money, like I, I was softer. Mm-hmm. These kids all live in the projects, and I lived up the hill in a house, you know, and uh, just, I think that that stayed with me for a while, and ironically, as I got older, like in a high school I didn't have that intimidation, but I did as a kid. I think I felt very, I felt guilty for having money as a kid. You know, when you grow up in a place where a lot of people don't, you feel, you feel like, it was one of the things I was ashamed of. I never wanted anybody to know that we had money. Uh, a, a through line in, in a lot of this stuff, um, you know, about your body and about your money is there's like a... Um, don't look at me. Right. Don't look at me. And yet, you become to a stand-up comedian. Yeah, but that's not me. Talk, talk about that. Well, the guy on stage is everything that I want to project. It's everything I want you to believe about me. It's the cocky, self-assured, smart guy who has got it over on you. You're shutting up for an hour, and you're listening to everything I say. And if you talk, you get thrown out. That's not me, you know. <laughs> That's my dream of who I am. Yeah. You know, I think when I meet people at a party, uh, I, I can sometimes go do a gig, like you do one of these corporate gigs, and you know, you're and they're like, yeah, you you know, have dinner with everybody before the show, and you know, you get to know people, and and I just go like, you 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 don't understand what this. <laughs> relationship is on any level here no i i don't meet them if i meet them i'm gonna be this just this scared little meager guy who has no social status these guys are all in suits and they're you know successful and they've got a fraternity of success of the guys around and i'm a guy alone in a hotel room who if he's not here is masturbating or staring into space (laughs) and i'm going to dominate you for one hour and then I'm going to get the fuck out of here with a check in my pocket. There's no mingling because that's that's not me. You portray it so well, though, because when you and I did that Adam Carolla show and we were hanging out backstage, you, you didn't feel any differently to me than you did the guy on stage. You seemed self-assured. You know, you we had a conversation. You flowed easily from one subject to the next. You well, because I'm around like-minded people. I'm. I mean, being around you guys is like okay. This is life. This is you talk about like having to you know scare yourself by skiing down a hill. Like for me, it's like go on stage with you and Corolla and um, you know and have to be on my game and think fast and. And it, and I go deeper. I mean, I, I go way different places in podcasting than I do with stand-up because I don't feel like I'm married to the joke or having to get a laugh every once in a while. And I trust that. I, I trust that being honest and doing like I love this podcast. I like I like to communicate this way. I think it's 
as compelling, more compelling than making people laugh. So I think that when I'm backstage and on stage doing something like that, that's uh, that's much more comfortable. It feels me. safer to you. Yeah. Like, like you're, the real you is going to be understood. There's a context being with you guys. Now, I don't want to go after the show. I don't want to be out front shaking people's hands. I do it and I hate it. It's so painful for me to shake people's hands, have them take pictures with me, a small talk with them. And because I feel like I, I have a different energy up on stage, I can't keep that energy going individually with people. I can do it collectively for all of you, but one-on-one, I feel like such a phony going, oh, thanks. All you keep saying is, oh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Thank-. And I do appreciate people coming out. It's just hard for me to express it, and it's hard for me to engage in that intimacy. It's not intimate when you're on stage. You're, uh, yeah, that, I think that's a great point. There is an energy because people are so excited when they meet you after their, well, some of them, some are very, very, never <laughs> want to see you again, but some are excited to, to, to see you and you feel an obligation to bring your energy up so they don't think, oh, this guy is pissed off to be standing in exactly. front of me. Exactly. You don't ever want somebody to think, oh, he thinks, you know, he thinks he's too good to talk to people, which is the problem, I think, with a lot of things in society is that, you know, what my skill set is, is writing and performing comedy. It's not meeting and greeting, hosting a wedding, you know, which is essentially what you turn into. I'm not, I was, I didn't get into this to do, um, you know, press tours or tweet relentlessly or, you know, any of the other things that you're forced to do to have a career. And I think it's the same with actors. You know, you see people who maybe studied acting and they want to, they want to do that, and they spend half their time doing interviews that they don't really want to be doing. And so I think it's it's something that the public takes for granted that um, we're not being douchebags if we're not giving you everything that you want on an interpersonal level. It's just not our strength necessarily. It might seem like it because that's what we're telling you on stage, but that's really a facade. It is, and the and the natural. If they saw what the average performer's natural energy is off stage, they would find it either disappointing or off-putting or both, or just sad. <laughs> yeah. hey, but either way, weird. That's why musicians get laid and comedians don't. Because after the show, I think if we could come out and be that, say, "Hey, how's it going, sweetie? Yeah, like the cleavage. Where are you going?" They they would keep laughing right to the hotel room, but. There's a different guy that comes out after the show, and he's he's not making eye contact, <laughs> and he's mumbling, and he wants to talk about his set. <laughs> the musician, he doesn't say shit. He didn't say he's shit while he was to playing be mysterious. bass. He's, he was playing bass with sunglasses on. He's still got sunglasses on. He's still not talking. You're going back to the hotel with him. <laughs> yeah, so true. It's so fucking true. <clears throat> So how do you when you're when your depression creeps in do you take any meds? I take a patch for ADHD. How does that work? Uh I in the morning I put it on it's like an Adderall, mm-hmm. not Adderall. Um uh, how bad my ADHD is is I've been on this thing for 7 years and it's a it's a Daytrona patch. It's uh Ritalin. Slow mm-hmm. release Ritalin. 
And so how does that, does that calm you down? Uh, just the opposite. It wires you up. Um, with ADHD, you're not, you're not uh, mentally stimulated. And so you don't engage. Your brain doesn't engage with your body. And so the stimulant allows you to, like, again, going back to that skiing thing, that you do that, you probably have some degree of that, like risk-taking, the fighting that I talk about, the stand-up. Those are all things that get me wound up, and then I feel alive. And the patch is a, a sort of a you know a physiological uh, change that happens to you when you put it on. Okay, because I, I know that Ritalin is a is a stimulant, but I thought it might have been one of those things where the ADHD the person is kind of amped up and it does the reverse and it calms them down. Yes, I'm amped up. Like, you know, my whole life, my leg bounces up and down nonstop. Mm-hmm. The reasons why I'm so skinny, I eat everything in the world and I can't put weight on because I'm just going and uh, I can't not have an activity. I'm just doing shit constantly. Um, and somehow throwing more energy on top of it is the thing that calms you down. So that is the case with you. Yeah. Then? Oh, okay. It keeps me focused and centered. I can't explain it all. You know, it's so weird when I try to explain the ADHD thing and the medications for it, I should ask my doctor again because it's worked for me. I mean, I I really wasn't getting a lot done in my life. And uh, then I got on this stuff and I, you know, so I I was writing on TV shows much more successfully, started doing the podcast twice a week years ago, wrote a book on the road 25 weekends a year. Uh, do didn't want a radio show every Monday night for six years. Father, husband, shit. You know, I just get it done. I did, I could never have done all this stuff. Wow, that is a lot of shit. Yeah, that is a lot of shit. You know, I think with depression, you see a lot of ADHD and 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 depression together. So a lot of times, what treats depression um, is also something that treats bipolar. It's just you may not have that high end, but a lot of the bipolar medications work for depression. I see. Uh, any other seminal moments from from your life? Let's see. Uh, yeah. Well, this one, you mean internally seminal or Either externally? One. Either well, one. externally, I had a very big <clears throat> thing happen. Well, first, um, one of my closest friends died from spinal meningitis, and uh, that was a that was a big deal. Comedian. How long ago was that? Uh, this was back in probably 98, uh, a guy named Jerry Red Wilson, comedian, and uh, I started this foundation for spinal meningitis with his cousin and his uh, fiance at the time. And uh, anyway, so just to set that up, so I knew everything about spinal meningitis. And then I was in St. Louis on the road, and I'm on the golf course with the club owner, and my phone rings. And it's my wife, and she's in the emergency room, and my nine-month-old son has spinal meningitis, which is very can be very fatal, and if not fatal, brain brain injury, uh, paralysis. So I'm on the next flight out, and I get there, and for 72 hours they do they do a uh, spinal tap, and they do tests, and you don't know whether or not your kid's going to live or die. He's basically out, and uh, that was like. You know, I guess it was like me realizing that it can it can be taken away. And I think I've raised my kids like that ever since, is that every day 
uh, if I can finish my work and get home and grab an hour making another memory with them, then that's what I should be doing. And every weekend I don't have to be away. Every Sunday night I can cut off of that offer that I get in Cleveland and just go for the Friday, Saturday. I'll take the loss in money, be home, you know? Um, I don't think I would have been that way. My father wasn't around a lot. And, uh, I think making skateboards with them and, you know, I'm reading the Confederacy of Dunces out loud to my daughter now, even though she's nine. I do all the, the New Orleans accent and all that. Such a fucking great book. Yeah, it's the greatest. And she gets it. She already gets it. Ignatius, you talking to them communists? Um, but so My valve. My valve. <laughs> my valve. <laughs> and so, like, you know, you just... I think that that was something that snapped me out of where I was headed because for the first year of his life, I was on the road. I was I was not around. And it was, I think, the toughest time in my me and my wife's marriage because she really felt abandoned at that time. And that's something we have to kind of deal with later. And uh, I reached out to uh, a couple friends, uh, Louis C.K. I said, you got to get me on a, on a show. He was writing on Cedric the Entertainer Presents. And he got me a meeting with Cedric. And uh, I sat down with him. I gave him a writing sample and I got hired got off the road for you know i've been on and off the road for 12 years writing on shows like basically half and half which has saved me and uh i wouldn't have done that i would have just stuck with the road i think if that hadn't happened one of the surveys we have on the website <clears throat> is called the happy moments survey and people share um the happiest moments that, that they remember from their life and every single happy moment that people share that has to do with their parents. It is never about some gift that they gave them. It is always about that person's attention and feeling seen and understood by that parent. Mm. Yeah. I've never met somebody who was fucked up because they didn't have money. Right. But there is so much emotional poverty in this country. We don't even, we're so distracted by all the shiny shit. We don't realize that, it is it, it it's an epidemic it is an epidemic and i don't know what the word for it the, my word for it is emotional poverty i don't i'm sure there's some better better well, word for it you but. could call material fetish you know we think that every piece of happiness has to be external and um hanging out my best memories are hey, brian van horn's apartment his mom single mom she worked at the hospital we'd come home after school and we would sit in his house smoke cigarettes, listen to Led Zeppelin albums, make prank calls, fucking laugh, you know. Uh, college, you know, sitting around the apartment, five other guys, just drinking some beer, playing darts. Like, those were the best times in life. And and with my family, you know, playing. We used to play uh, Crazy Eights, that card game, you know. And we would play. We were kids. We'd play till midnight, you know, on a school night because we'd just start playing and laughing and yeah, those those were really great. And I have to say, vacations with my family really are now. Like, we vacation very well together. We camp. Just the four of us together is pure happiness. We all love it. So, like, even if it's not a huge trip, just getting away from the electronics and the TV and the phone calls and the other friends and, you know, whatever. Just, like, we really enjoy spending time with each other. That's beautiful, man. That's really beautiful. I love, I love hearing... Um, I, I can never hear enough of parents being emotionally invested in their children's lives and really seeing their children, not trying to 
mold them into something they think is going to protect their child from, right. the, from the world. I think that's the biggest mistake parents make is they think I have to, you know, discipline this child into something that will survive well in the world. And while I think there certainly is a small component in that in your job as a parent, the bulk of it is is just letting that kid know that they're okay exactly as they are. Right. They're loved. That's 100% right. If my kid has confidence, he'll figure the rest out. And the only thing I really struggle with is could I be motivating them more? You know, there's ways that you can really... Because I do believe we can be too soft on our kids. Like my daughter right now wants to quit playing flute. And I just said to my wife, you know, we live in one of the few school districts in Los Angeles where there is a music program, where they have teachers and classes and they can and you know she wants to join choir which is also considered that's their music curriculum they can do that and i just said you know my son wanted to quit trumpet and i said no i go it's not an option we you got a chance to play an instrument it's like math it's like we play musical instruments in this family that's one of your obligations you know he's got to mow the lawn every week you know there's like and meanwhile you can get a garden around here for like fucking 60 bucks a month but we got that push mower right behind you and he pushes that fucking mower and does the grass. But I feel like there's ways that I could really be, you know, positively influencing them to push themselves harder. Um, is, there a, is there a fine line that you try to be aware of so that it, it doesn't? Oh, I'm nowhere near it. Yeah. I'm nowhere near that and line. being domineering. I or, could be yeah. a lot tougher. And, you know, it's it's just so much more fun to just hang with them but i realize you know part of a parent is that when they leave your house there's going to be tough times where you know you don't want him to be satisfied living in a apartment with three other guys when he's 30 years old and not you know pushing himself to find his potential and i think that part of my job as a parent is you know especially at this age now of of you know like not being satisfied with just minimal effort mm -hmm. uh any any other things you want to touch on before we uh take it out with uh fear off and love off no i just i you know look i appreciate you doing this uh podcast it's so great when a comedian can uh you know change gears and do something that's so much a part of you obviously and i think it's something that comedians all have inside of them so uh you probably don't have all comedians but no i don't but i don't it's, it's good for a comic to change gears thanks it's uh it, it feels right you know you know that when something feels right you're like oh yeah where's this been my right where's this been my, my whole and life that's the beauty of podcasting it's there's no genre you don't have to list it under one genre you don't have a network executive giving you notes it's like i guess i'm gonna do i don't know turn on the mic here we go i love that my podcast is listed under health and is it it well yeah because i didn't know what other what other because i can't put it you under comedy one. and i and self-help and health are the you know Health and then slash self help seemed the closest to it. I I just love the fact that I have a podcast that's in the health category. And the last time I went to a health club, the woman scanned my card and her jaw dropped open, <laughs> and she went, "You haven't been here in seven hundred days." <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Did she look at your body? Did she look at your ass immediately? <laughs> Turn around. I mean, in in fairness, I had had shoulder surgery, but that seven hundred days that was yeah. There was some whatever the cancellation fee was might yeah. might have been the better option. I canceled. I canceled yeah. it after that. Ah. But yeah, 
but um but thank you for uh for your for your nice words and being so uh so open and and honest i i appreciate it and i've always been a fan of your stand-up i uh just love it you're a you're a really funny guy well thank you man yeah. i appreciate that and i like that you go you bring um your comedy goes deeper than people that just write jokes and i always like that that's always like a little cherry on top of the sunday for me is when it's about something emotional mm. or, or there's some vulnerability in it and i yeah. I, I like that i appreciate yeah. that i think that takes i think that takes balls to to be able to do that in a comedy club thank you yeah i guess that's what scares me going there which always makes the comedy better yeah, I I could never get the balls to to do it in a comedy club. I can do it on a podcast, but mm-hmm. in a comedy club, I've always my hat has always been off to the guys that uh, that can put that put that out there. And so, thank you. Uh, so let's start off with uh, we're gonna we're gonna improvise some uh, some fears. Here we go. Uh, well, the, right now, I'm afraid the traffic is going to be horrible on my way back, and I'm going to be late for uh, dinner that uh, I'm supposed to meet somebody, and they're going to be disappointed, and I'm going to feel like a bad friend. Sometimes I have a fear at the end of a podcast that uh, it wasn't good, and I don't know, and then I listen to it many times. I listen to it, oh, no, this is fucking great. I don't know. I was just being hypercritical, but no fear there. I have that all the time that I, I I'm constantly afraid that I come across that that I'm naturally kind of an asshole inside and that I have to do my best to hide that part of me because right. I'm naturally kind of um, just wrong you know just uh, say the wrong thing and and I have to be constantly alert for how I present myself because Otherwise, people would would just be like, "Ugh, that fucking guy." Yeah, I have a fear that my kid is going to be riding his skateboard that we built together one day, and other kids are going to see him and tease him that it's a homemade skateboard. You know, the idea that this thing is so sacred—I think between he and I—but that it would be seen in a different way among kids that are all mm. about brands. Yeah. And see that it's not exactly symmetry. The, the symmetry is a little off, and you know, yeah. I always think of that a guitar that Brian May plays. You know, he and his dad built that when he was a kid. Brian, who? Brian May, the guitarist for Queen. Oh, really? That that red guitar that he plays that is has such amazing sound to he it. He built it with his dad. He built it with his dad, and it's the wood from uh, a two hundred year old fireplace. But wow. the, the fact that he and his dad built something together that is so precise and so sonically good uh whose turn yours i just said the skateboard one right. don't try to pussy out um, you must run out because you got to do it every week uh i do i usually go to listeners uh fears okay. but i'm too lazy to reach over and pull right, the, i want to hear the, your the, fears man uh, i'm afraid that i'm going to need uh shoulder surgery again and that my muscles are uh just getting tighter and tighter and tighter and eventually i'm just going to lose all movement and i'm just going to be that stiff guy that everybody pities wow my fear is staying in this town too long i don't want to be the guy who's you know wearing sweats and walking as german shepherd in the park looking for anybody who he worked with on a pilot 20 years ago who will have a talk with him (laughs) i'm afraid that when i go to do a festival in portland uh, in a month, uh, 
that I'm not going to organize my time there well, and I'm going to disappoint myself and other people and maybe do a live show that's a train wreck, and I'll, and I'll be embarrassed because I won't have put enough thought and effort into it. And once again, I, it will be, oh, you lazy fuck, and I'll leave there feeling like you lazy fuck. Well, you kind of can't win that one, though, can you? Because there's no, there's no line that you will work above that will make you dismiss that fear. You know, because really, performing is about feeling it, confident, feeling funny, and all that writing shit is great, but it's so far behind walking out there not feeling afraid of what you just described. Yeah. I think I understood what you said. In other words, you getting past that fear, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Mm-hmm. Like You getting past that fear is so much more important than you sitting down for eight hours every day between now and then and writing. I got you. Because you know how many fucking hours have you logged on stage in front of a camera you know, doing this character you do. Like, you know it. You can own it. Now, if you write some new shit, that's great. But- Worst case scenario is you going up there afraid you didn't. Yes. I'm not so much afraid of doing my character as I am doing a live show because I've never done a live show of my podcast. And oh, and I'm okay. and I'm terrified that it's oh, not gonna good. be I'm I'm not gonna the gr- the great idea for how to do it will come to me on the plane ride home. Right. Right. And I will go, Oh, why did I yeah. do that instead? Because for me, it's always because I get paralyzed with the fear of doing it. Right. And then once it's over, obviously that fear is gone, and then the juices come in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always why I like an early show and a late show. Mm-hmm. You know, the second show, you're always loose, and you, you got yeah. you got to figure it out. But, oh, that'll be great. You're doing the podcast live. That'll be awesome. I'm, I'm hoping to. And I've got some great, great guests uh, who uh, I think are willing to uh, to do it. So it, it won't be because of them. It, mm. I, f- I'm, I fear it will be, be just because of my poor organizational yeah. skills. Wow. All right. All right, your turn. Then we'll go to Love's. Okay. I'm going to Florida for Easter with my family. And uh, I am horribly afraid that my mother will push everybody button and that as a 46 year old man i will be diminished to the same place that we all are that they the mom still has that power uh some of the stuff you describe with your mom i've you know it's amazing it's how powerful they are and in reality they have nothing to do with your life anymore you know i see my mom uh we talk on the phone every three weeks and i see her three four times a year so it shouldn't really matter her approval and all that, and it, and and I'm just afraid that I will fly home feeling like you just spent a week in Florida and didn't enjoy it because you fed into it and you weren't. Power of now is going to help me. I'm going to see the thoughts. I'm going to observe myself having those thoughts and and say, yeah, you're having those thoughts because it's your mom, and she pushes those buttons, and now you're reacting to it the way you do. That's what's yeah. happening. Love Eckhart Tolle. Have you read A New Earth? No. By him. Oh, dude, you have to get it. Really? It's so good. I like good it. About even, the environment. Like, more? I like it. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with uh, uh, the the earth or environment or anything. It's just about consciousness and seeing how the ego injects itself into our daily lives. All right. It's it's a lot. 
it's even more practical than The Power of Now. Wow. I like The Power of Now, but I'm a huge fan of A New Earth. It was his book after that one. You know what the best part is, is I read The Power of Now, and then I'm a big audiobook guy, and I listen to them going to sleep at night to kill mm. the voices. And uh, I was so afraid that I was going to hear him, and he was going to be this flaky sissy and... Mm. And so I had to prepare myself. I, could, I downloaded it. I couldn't listen to it for like a month. And I had to keep saying, okay, here's the exercise. No matter what this dude sounds like, you're going to accept that it's the dude who wrote that book to change your life, and you're going to be okay with it. Sure enough, the flakiest, long pauses. Like, you know, you, he, it was done at like a retreat up in, you know, Marin or something, and you just can hear the chicks in yoga pants <laughs> And and I and I just and he laughs at himself and I love him. I made myself love it. No problem, no judgment on that car toll live. That's awesome. Right. Oh well that's a good thing to segue into our love off for. Um I love seeing a dad be involved in a, a kid's life and building shit with them. That that makes me extremely happy. I love to hear that. Cause I uh I sometimes forget that um, that I have that balance, you know. Sometimes I can feel like my career is not as far along as I wish it was. I'm not working out enough. I'm not a good enough of a dad. And then, uh, and then I got I hear that, and it's like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess I am a good dad. I guess I'm doing all right. I love uh, watching Patrick Kane either make a pass or score a goal uh, after doing a spinorama move. Yeah, I saw one of those the other night. I love finding a new series on Netflix so when I go on the road, I can go to bed at midnight and stay up till 5 a.m. watching consecutive episodes of The Wire or yes. Breaking Bad or Dexter. It was something fucking dark and horrible. It's the only thing that gets, and I can't, usually at home you watch one or two and it's like, oh, we got to go to bed. We got to wake up early. And on the road, it's just an orgy of great TV. I completely agree. I did that with Game of Thrones and Walking Dead. Yeah, Game of Thrones, I have ahead of me still. Haven't started. Mm, That's so good. Good. That's so good. Um, I love the feeling of being in a support group and being able to express what is in my soul in a way that lets some of the pain and the fear out and it feels like it brings me closer to the other people in the support group. Wow. All right, we're going deep on the last one. <laughs> okay. I love that life gives you opportunities to grow. Uh, I've always had a bad temper and I fight. And the other day, a guy, apparently I cut him off. I didn't realize it. And I'm in my Prius. He's in a big F-150 jacked up truck. And he starts tailgating me and following me home, like zigzagging Mm. through streets. And I was on the phone with my mom. And I go, Mom, I got to go. I got a little situation here. Got to focus on. And uh, my normal reaction would be to flip him off, slam on the brakes, egg him on, uh, or pull over, jump out of the car. And uh, instead, I just slowly drove. I pull over on the side of the street. I let him roll up. He put his window down. I put my window down. He goes, hey, you got a problem? And I said, do I look like I have a problem? And he goes, you cut me off with your faggoty little car. (laughs) And I just started laughing because I had already decided that I was not going to fight this guy and that 
I was some uh, one of my I went to an anger management class, and they said you have a choice when these conflicts come up to either extend this relationship or to terminate this relationship, and I took the option of exterminating it by not engaging, by just laughing, and then I said you know what. No problem, man. If I cut you off, I apologize. And he and he kept egging me. He kept saying stuff, and I just looked him right in the eye. I didn't back off mm-hmm. because that's the worst thing to do. I looked him right in the eye. I just kept nodding, and then eventually he wore himself out and he drove away. And I felt empowered all night. I came in the door. I'm like, honey, you should be so fucking proud of me. Because normally I come home and I go, yeah, I just got in a fist fight with the guy at my radio station, which happened like <laughs> six months ago. And uh, and so like, I love that when you think that life gets boring, you don't have to wait for a bad thing to happen that makes you scramble and feel relieved that you avoided it or got out of a bad thing, but that you actually can challenge yourself to get better and that you can... Um, I think I always felt like there was a limit on how good you could get because we're essentially bad. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like, uh, no, if you trust and you're vulnerable, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. There's always room. That's a great one. I love that. What a great one to end on. All right. Greg Fitzsimmons, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Many, many thanks to Greg Fitzsimmons for... Uh, just being so uh so funny and 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 honest i really really enjoyed uh not only having him on this podcast but uh, getting to do his his uh his podcast um and i apologize about talking about my junk again but he asked i almost edited it out and then i was like you know what everybody doesn't listen to every episode of this show so um there you have it um before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways that uh, you can support the show. Um, you can support it financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, recurring monthly donation. You just have to set it up once, and then it, until your credit card expires, uh, it just keeps um, giving me a couple of dollars every month. You can uh, do it for as little as five bucks a, a month. Um, got some super sweet people out there. Giving me like 20 bucks a month, even 25 bucks a month. I can love you. I love everybody that sends me even a buck. Thank you so much. Gets me closer to my goal of being able to support myself doing this show. You can also support us financially by using our Amazon search portal. So when you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our website, right-hand side, about halfway down. Um, You can also, um, I know I'm forgetting something. Who gives a shit? You can support us non-financially by going to uh, iTunes, giving us a good rating, boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show, and uh, spreading the word through social media. That that helps. And uh, sign up to be a transcriber. A lot of you have been signing up to do that. Too many of you to, uh, to thank, or I should say I'm too impatient to take time to thank all of you. I've thanked you via email, but um, let me thank you out loud, because it is that's a full day of work transcribing one of these episodes, uh, especially the early ones where I say, uh-huh, yeah, right, uh-huh, after everything somebody says. I can't imagine how annoying that must have been to transcribe, so thank you. All right, and I've beaten myself up. Let's get to some surveys. Oh, and I am still planning on coming to uh, Portland April 18th through uh, 20th, 
and uh, hopefully we're going to do a live show. I'll give you more details as that as that becomes um, as I get that information. And uh, if you're going to be in Portland and you want to see me, definitely follow me on Twitter at uh, MentalPod. And that way you'll get up-to-the-minute uh, info on where I'm going to be, if we have a listener get-together, or whatever, whatever it is. Okay. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sasha. She's in her 40s. She's bisexual, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Um I fought off a rapist once. You know, I'd say if the word rape is in there, um, yeah, that that probably qualifies as as, uh, sexual abuse. I fought off a rapist once in a deserted part of a hilly area. I was going to let him rape me because I was afraid, but then he made it known the rape was going to be anal, and that took it to a whole different level in my mind, so I fought back even though I was afraid he'd kill me. He slammed my head on the pavement until I saw stars, but I kept fighting. Then he threw my purse off the hill and drove away. I had to walk a mile down the hill at night, all bloody, with my clothes torn to get back to my car, but at least I didn't get raped. I don't know if I have ever read, and I've been doing this show for two years, I don't know if I have ever read something as fucking intense as that paragraph that you just wrote. Wow. I I really hope that you're talking to somebody professional or some type of support group about that cuz that is some that is some heavy shit even if you the act didn't happen that that the fucking stress. My god. Deepest darkest thoughts. I wonder if I made a mistake marrying my husband. He's a wonderful man, but he doesn't make a very good living. For the most part, I support us. Our sex life isn't great either. And I wonder if I should have been more courageous and paid more attention to my attractions for women instead of brushing them aside and focusing on men. Deepest Darkest Secrets. I'm an upstanding member of society with a respectable legal career and a strong family life, but my past was very different. I've been to prison three times for opiate addiction. I used to be a prostitute and not a fancy one, but a street hooker who charged as little as $20 when I was desperate. I burglarized houses, stole from stores, and sold drugs to support my habit. Even before my my drug addiction, I had lots of sex with lots of different guys just for the fun of it. I value the lessons I learned, and for a long time, I enjoyed being wild and an outlaw. But if any of my coworkers or friends knew, they would be shocked and would look at me completely different. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have shut down a lot of my sexual feelings because my husband and I have so little sex. Our sex life is not satisfying, and I'm not willing to have sex outside our relationship. So I feel like engaging in a rich fantasy life would uh, frustrate me more and might spark desires in me that are best to leave alone. I had plenty of sex when I was younger with probably over a thousand partners, so it's not like I feel I am missing out. I kind of feel like it's a chapter in my life that has ended, at least for now. On the rare occasions when I do fantasize, I think about having sex with women. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, yes, because I'm not ashamed of wanting to sleep with women. My partner and my closest friends know that I am attracted to both sexes. Do these secrets and thoughts 
generate any particular feelings towards yourself. She writes, just regret that I had mostly male partners and married a man. I thought when I was younger that I couldn't possibly be gay because I didn't like women's vaginas. But I was and still am attracted to women. And a woman is composed of more than just a vagina. I wish I would have explored my attractions to women more thoroughly before marrying a man. Thank you for that. This next one is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by... No, I'm sorry. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way uh, survey. And this was filled out by a guy who calls himself SW3NGY. And... Um, He's straight, he's in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? And he writes that I was a kind and generous person who cared about his family and friends. How does write, writing that make you feel? He writes that no one gives a shit about me and that my kindness and generosity is always a way for them to take advantage of me and use me for what I can offer. No one will come anyway. You had a time machine, how would you use it? He writes, go back to my childhood. I don't remember it at all. I seem to have blocked it all, except for the memories of my screw-ups and being a hyperactive child and family and parents and teachers hating me. Um, what do you feel that you feel you shouldn't feel? I'm supposed to feel good about starting my own business, but I don't. I feel like a failure, and no matter how much I work or make, I'm always behind. I'm supposed to feel happy and in love about being a newlywed, but I don't. I feel I've let my partner down and brought her into my life of disappointments and screw-ups. I'm supposed to feel proud about what I have accomplished in life, but I don't. I hate my life and everything about it. I'm supposed to look forward to the future, but I don't. I want to die and be done with it. What is it making you feel writing your feelings out? He writes, I feel angry and uh, anxious. How is this helping anything? I just think about everything I did wrong and wish life didn't take so long to end. I want to snap and feel I could put my head through the wall right now, but I always feel that way. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? He writes, I know others feel depression and probably in similar or worse ways. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? He writes, no. I just want to be happy or else be sedated from the pain I feel. I'm 32 and don't remember my past or anything happy. I feel if I live for another 50 years, that'll be living a life of hell and sadness. Do you have any comments or suggestions to make the podcast better? I'm a new listener, so I hope to get something from it. Pills don't work and neither does therapy, in my humble opinion. I would, I would suggest sticking with them and trying to be patient because for a lot of people that those things do work um and this is another uh this is a different survey but also filled out by him and this is the struggle in a sentence survey about his depression he writes atypical but i think i feel like killing myself on a daily basis about his anxiety extreme always hard to breathe or relax about his alcoholism and drug addiction stop drinking for three months now i think it's better about his OCD, uh, he writes, so I'm told by my wife, but I think it can make me productive. About his anger issues, extreme. I feel I could kill someone for no reason if they even look at me different. Um, I often have flash thoughts of punching or hitting people around me or killing them. Um, I trace my arms sometimes with a knife, imagining what the pain would feel like if I pushed harder. Uh, and would the pain be followed by happiness? And then his 
comment about this one. Any comments to make the podcast better? He writes, why the fuck would anyone want to buy a t-shirt for this podcast? Hey, look at me. I'm telling the world I'm depressed and have an illness, and my life is fucked up. Support my cause like it's fun or something to be proud of. Idiotic. At the risk of sounding like I know you better than I do, I recognize so many of the feelings that I feel like you're expressing and I just want to give you a big hug and encourage you to stay in there because I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed by anger and to feel like I've been dealt a shit hand and it's never going to get better. And you're so much more lovable than you think you are. We all are. But a lot of times if we're dealing with addiction or depression, it masks that light inside of us and it makes it so hard for us to see it but sometimes other people can see it my wife saw it in me you know when I apologized to her after I quit drinking she said and I think I've shared this with you guys before I know you think I stuck with you because I have low self-esteem but I stuck with you because I always knew that you'd become the man that you've become and if I had given up on therapy after a couple of months if I'd given up on support groups we're trying to find the right meds, which I still struggle with. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get to have moments like that. I wouldn't get to realize my potential. I wouldn't be doing this show. So that's my two cents. Sending you some love. This is also from the shame and well, not also from the shame and this is from the shame and secret survey. Uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself My Shame. She is bisexual, pansexual, uh, in her 30s, raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts? I've had sexual fantasies during masturbation about my family members having sex with my girlfriend. I fantasize a lot about anonymous sex encounters, especially where I'm fucked hard. Every once in a while, I've had disturbing thoughts about physically hurting my girlfriends when I don't want to be with them anymore, but I don't have the balls to break up with them. I thought about having revenge sex with the girls my girlfriend cheated on, on me with and making sure she caught us just to get back at her. Deepest, darkest secrets. I was molested by a family member for a couple of years when I was very young and simultaneously acted out the same things with my sibling. I enjoyed all of the experiences and also hated myself and knew I was a terrible kid. I fooled around with my cousin in my teens. When I masturbate, I can't come unless I think about someone else fucking my girlfriend. Um, I would say that you were not a terrible kid. Um, I think any kid that is being sexually molested by a family member is and doesn't have any coping mechanisms or a person to talk to about that is going to create some chaos. Um, what sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? I've mentioned this before in some ways. I fantasize a lot about other people fucking my girlfriend where I don't have control. All of my fantasies involve my control being taken away from me. Tie me up, spank me, yell at me, force me to do things to them, pee on me but I don't fantasize about being in pain. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? I would never tell my partner, but I might tell a close friend. I've never told anyone. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, The thoughts about watching other people screw my girlfriend make me feel fucked up, 
My girlfriend cheated on me, so why it would turn me on to watch her cheating makes no sense to me. Well, if you've been listening to this show for the last couple of years and hearing me read these things, most people's sexual fantasies make no sense to them morally. And there's a lot of people that believe that that is part of the turn on, that hurdle that our brain creates. Uh, often that shame, it intensifies it, even though it brings us negative feelings and a feeling of emptiness afterwards. Um, she writes, in real life, it would be horrible, but sexually, it would turn me on. My fantasies about not being in control just make me horny. It's this idea in my head that if someone wanted to control me that much, it means they want me a lot more. Control equals desire in my head, I guess. When I masturbate and think about any of these sexual fantasies, I usually feel really ashamed and empty afterwards, but they're still there in my head. Well, my shame, as you call yourself, you are not alone. You are so not alone. Uh, go through, go to the website and click on the shame and secret survey and look at the results of how other people have have answered this and you will see that you are you are not alone all right i'm going to take it out with a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself dimitri he's in his 20s and he writes a fellow student who i'm secretly a little in love with is doing her bachelor's thesis and is going through a time of stress and uncertainty the other morning i was working in the same room at the university with her partly to get work done in a working atmosphere without distractions, and partly because I wanted to help her out if she'd be stuck with her work. There was still snow outside, but the sun was shining warmly into the large windows of the room. She was sitting at the window watching children play on a playground at the other side of the garden we have behind our university. She suddenly started talking about growing up with her brothers and being around boys all the time, how it may have affected her development of not being able to express feelings properly. I can't remember what I said to her at that moment, but I remember her long blonde hair when she was sitting on the windowsill, her whole body illuminated by the morning light from outside, and that smile on her face, full of honest thankfulness for whatever I said. In this moment, I realized that I don't need to, quote, own her, to make her mine, or something stupid like that. The egotistic neediness was gone completely. I didn't want anything from her at all. It was the perfect moment to be of help to this beautiful human being, to share a little of my strength with her when she was in need the most, and it made me so incredibly proud and thankful that we connected in this seemingly small moment of happiness. Ah, fucking beautiful. Thank you, Dimitri. And thank you guys for everything. Everything. I just can't, I can't even imagine what I would be doing without this podcast. I can't. I can't. And the love that I get back from you guys is so awesome. It is so awesome. And when I'm having a dark day, man, it just, it really buoys me. I may have never used the word buoy before. And I don't think I will again. If you're out there and you're stuck, don't give up. There is hope. You are not alone. Thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.